0: Alright, several years ago, Carl Reiner, you know him? I think he's the one that was Archie Bunker's son-in-law, right? And then Mel Brooks uh, did a comedy skit called the 2013, the 2013-year-old man. And in this skit, Reiner's interviewing Brooks, who's playing the old man. And at one point, Reiner asks this old gentleman, Do you, Did you always believe in the Lord? And Brooks replies, No, we had a guy in our village named Phil... And for a time, we worshiped him. Reiner said, you worshiped a guy named Phil? Why? And Brooks said, this older gentleman, because he was big and mean and he could break you in two with his bare hands. Reiner said, did you have prayers to Phil? Oh, yes. Would you like to hear one? I'm not sure. Oh, Phil, please don't be mean. Please don't hurt us. And please don't break us in two with your bare hands. So Reiner said, so when did you start worshiping the Lord? And Brooks said, well, one day a big thunderstorm came up and a lightning bolt hit Phil. We gathered around Phil and saw that he was dead. And we said to one another, there's something bigger than Phil. (laughs) I'm like, how are you going to transition to that? Right, brother? All right, here's my transition. Are you ready? Trusting God is the hardest thing you're going to do in this life. And if you haven't realized that, you haven't really trusted him. The easiest thing to do in this life is worry and be anxious and be fearful and demand your desires And to crave to control your own world. That's the easiest thing to do. To trust God is not natural to us. If it was natural to us, we would all be trusting the Lord and following him easily in our lives. Every area of our life. And things like worry, being anxious and fearful, dominating desires that seem to rule us. This pension to try to control everything that goes on in our world would be foreign to us, right? So trusting God is the hardest thing in the world to do. Now here, here's the deal. Every one of us in here right now is guilty of little faith, okay? And it gets worse than that. Can you hear me? It gets worse because knowing that doesn't change it. knowing that you have little faith does not give you great faith. It's kind of like this. Knowing that you have a temper doesn't keep you from exploding with your temper. Does it? Knowing that you have a pension to mull things over and over and over and over and try to control them in your internal clock and try to control them in your outside hands doesn't change you. It doesn't keep you from that endless internal argument of trying to control your world and trying to move with your hands to control your world. doesn't do it. Knowing that you're a helicopter parent. I think, Tim, where are you? Did you say they're Blackhawk? I think he told me they're now Blackhawk parents. That the helicopter is too light. That's just not enough. Now it's really the full-blown Blackhawk down type helicopter parents. Knowing that you are that. I mean, let's face it. I got two boys, they're going to go to school. Okay. I got two girls and they're going to go to school. I'm flying. (laughs) Knowing that you're that, knowing that you're like that still doesn't change you. When you see something that you don't like in your children, you see that they listen to stuff you don't like, they eat stuff you don't like, they are struggling with their own sins and stuff about themselves that they don't like. When that happens, you get in your helicopter. One writer puts it this way. Acknowledging the diagnosis does not automatically lead to a cure. You can confess worry, and then worry will creep in right when you're confessing. Right? So what do we do? If trusting God is the hardest thing to do, and the easiest thing to do is to worry, and to try to control your world, and to be anxious and fearful, and to be ruled by these desires that aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves, but they seem to have this life-dominating effect on us, what do we do? Here's the answer. There's something bigger than Phil. Please stand for the hearing of God's Word. In Psalm 45, we get something that's bigger than Phil. And the purpose of us being given something bigger than Phil is so that we do the hardest thing there is to do in this life, and that's trust God. Here we go, Psalm 45. 45. Verse 1, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like a pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword. I mean, what a transition, isn't that? It's an unbelievable transition. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. And your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp. In the heart of the king's enemies, the peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness. You've hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myth and aloes and sesia, And from ivory, palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among the ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen of the gold of Ophir. Here, O daughter, that area, that Ophir, is believed at that time to be uh, the main place or the source in which gold was found. Okay, so this is the origin. You've heard of Solomon's tomb, Solomon's mines. Remember in the... In the world, that's kind of a big thing. Well, this is kind of the legend. This is kind of the source. It's believed that from there is where gold came from. All right, here, O daughters, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts. The richest of the people... All glorious is the princess in her chamber, and the robes interwoven with gold, and many colored robes she has led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Please be seated. Oh, Lord, we do come to you recognizing that this is an unbelievable picture and recognizing that you have this here so we see you. You have this here so that we trust you. And so, O oh Lord, would you do this? Would you accomplish this passage? Would you give it and grant it? Would you shine on the page? Would you, would you show up? And do the impossible. For as Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing the words of Christ. May we hear. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Verse 1 is a picture of a trusting heart. You got that? Look at verse 1. What a picture. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe this person is a poetic scribe. This person is witnessing a royal wedding. Did you get that? That part, it was kind of, it was hard to figure out until you get to around verse 10 and you start seeing that, okay, there's there's something going on with this great prince or this great king and then there's a wedding to a princess. Now, what's happening here is it's a poetic scribe. So it's not just a, pure journalistic scribe or a historical scribe because if that's all he was doing, he would have told us specifically what royal son this was. That's not his point. So this is a poetic scribe that's in the councils of the kingdom to write down the culture and the history and the highs and the lows and the the important identity of this kingdom and then this people. And so he's writing this stuff down, but he's not purely historical. So he's not just a Earthly perspective he's also got a heavenly perspective, so he's got a historical perspective, but he's not being strictly historical. He tell us what son of David this is. But he has a vertical perspective that he's bringing in too. So there's a horizontal, which is the historical, but he's not purely journalistic. Or he'd tell you the king. We just know that it's some son of David, OK? But he's got a vertical perspective that he's doing as well, because the vertical perspective is the, is the intrusion of God's meaning and interpretation that he fastens to the historical events. So what's taking place here is the collision of two worlds. And so if you're going to understand Psalm 45, you've got to understand that this poetic scribe has his foot in the earthly or the horizontal, a son of David, marrying a prince, princess, right? Then you got a foot in the other world where he's in the heavenly world. And it's some extraordinary human yet heavenly king. And the worlds are going like this. And in this psalm, sometimes you don't know whether is his foot in the earthly or is his foot in the heavenly. And it's meant to be that way. Is he talking about the earthly king here? Or is he talking about a heavenly king? And the answer is yes. The lines get real blurred. And one way I want you to realize this is this. This is very hyperbolic, very metaphorical language, right? It's kind of off-the-charts language in describing an earthly king. But that's the point. He's describing the earthly king in hyperbolic language that there's some truth to it, but it doesn't fulfill it. But that hyperbolic language does fulfill a heavenly king. See how this works? So you've got to remember this while you're reading this. So you're going to get kind of confused. Also, if you're not convinced, uh, Luke quotes verse 2 in reference to Jesus In Luke. Right after Jesus' first sermon, this is what Luke says the people said about him. Verse 2. Wow. Hebrews, The book of Hebrews in the New Testament. It looks at verse 6. It quotes completely verse 6 and says, this is about Jesus. So at least when you get to the New Testament, the New Testament writers, when they looked at this passage, they saw there were two worlds going on here. And the line between them got really thin. Okay? Also, there's one thing that would also help us here, just in orienting ourselves to the text, is that God made a covenant with David that he would have a son from his line that would reign on the throne of God forever and ever. Look at verse six. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. God promised that David would have a son from his line sit on the throne of God forever and ever. In other words, he promised that there would be a son who would unite the earthly kingdom and the heavenly kingdom under one kingdom. Okay? All that is loaded into this psalm. It's pushed into this psalm. All right. If you need more help convincing you this, I, I, I don't know what else I can do for you. That's about, it's about as clear as I think we can get. It, the scholars call it a messianic psalm. They call it a royal psalm that, that is pictorial and perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. Okay? So there it is set out front. Now let's look at the poet's heart again. It's overflowing, verse 1. Overflowing. Literally, it means his heart keeps moving. That word overflows, it means keeps moving. It's running water that doesn't stop. So the heart's never in neutral, the heart is always in gear. And it literally, in the ancient Near East, the word that describes this, this overflowing is boiling. So his heart is boiling with vitality and life and passion and intensity. You see this? We would say he's fired up. We would say, man, he's pumped up. He's on fire. That's exactly what's taking place here the psalmist. He He is fired up. Okay? Now look at his heart again. It's overflowing with a pleasing theme. In other words, he really likes what he's writing about. He really likes what he's seeing. It's good news to him. So the psalmist, whatever he's seeing and whatever he's doing, he's not bored. He's not like, I've got to write it down because I have to. Well, it's the right thing to do. I best I better do it. Well, you know, I'd rather be home watching Dancing with the Stars, but this is okay. He is fully engaged. It's a pleasing theme. And if you don't, if we don't get it fully in the ancient Near East that word pleasing refers to the pleasing beauty of a woman to a man. He likes it. (laughs) He really likes what he's seeing and what he's writing down. He's fully engaged. This theme is very attractive to him. So this poetic scribe is not writing a sophisticated review of an opera. All right, he's not at some highbrow social event and well, Biff said this. And Buffy, what a dress she had. I mean, this is, this is a sports writer at the Super Bowl and his team's winning. He's like, ah! Oh! I mean, he's, he's fired up. He's pumped up. And when you get to verses 2 through 7, look at verses 2 through 7. You get a picture of him actually being, this is the way I picture what's taking place because remember, it's a, it's a rough transition. It's like he's at this... He's at this unbelievable wedding that has earthly significance, but also heavenly vertical significance. And then all of a sudden, he's with some warrior who's strapping a sword on his thigh. What a transition. It's almost like at the, first he's in the palace, and the next thing you know, he's on a rocky crag, and he smells... He smells the impending war that he's looking down at. And he's on that rocky crag so he can see the two armies that are down there in the valley below him. And it's not that he's writing in an impersonal state. He has a personal stake in it because one of the armies is his own home country. And so whatever happens to his army happens to him. He has a personal stake in what he's writing down. And as he looks down there and he sees these two opposing armies ready to face off, and the, the smell of war is in the air, he watches as each side sends out their own champion to face in the middle of the battlefield. And as the two separate and walk to the middle of the battlefield, and they now face off with each other, he starts biting his fingernails. And he's strained to see the face of that champion that walked out of his homeland. Who's that? Who is it? And all of a sudden, he gets a... The guy turns and he catches his face. And relief and recognition washes all over him. And he goes, it's him. It's him are safe we will win what's happening in this psalm is that a man sees something that makes him do the hardest thing on earth to do trust God and that's the point the point of the psalm I'm going to give you right up because I'm going to give you the point and then we're going to experience the point so the point is this. Trust is always what you do when you see him. It's always what you do when you see him. When you look at the scriptures from the beginning to end, it's, it's always a question of, do you see him? If you see him, you will trust him. Always. And so whenever we encounter difficulty and little faith and unbelief and doubts and lies, and we have this false prophetic world that we spin and that we live in, and we create it with other people, we create it with ourselves the bottom line is we don't see him. We see our own kingdom. And we see ourselves. And we see giants. And we see grasshoppers. And we don't see him. And so God has this scribe for one specific purpose. The scribe gets a peek. The scribe gets a... Maybe the other people are there. They're watching the wedding, but they're only seeing the horizontal. They're only seeing the historical. And God says, you've got to, someone's got to witness the vertical. And this guy does. And God says, write it down. Write it down so that when others come, they can see. And if they see the stuff that's in this psalm, trust is always what you do when you see them. Okay? So what's the issue then? What did he see? What did he see? That's where we're moving. So if trust is always what you do when you see him, the issue is, well, what did he see? And then as we're looking at what did he see, ask the Lord, those of you that know him now, ask him, show me. Help me see this too. Okay? So here we go. We've got two crucial components. We want to break it down propositionally. It's poetry, but we still got to organize our thoughts. There are two crucial components to genuine faith found in the psalm. Or we could say it this way there are two wonders that little faith desperately needs. So, when you're in a season of little faith, there are two wonders in this text that you desperately need. You desperately need to hear it, you desperately need to see it. As we grow in genuine faith, there are two components to genuine faith that are always there that are found in the psalm. Okay? Here's the first I'm going to give it to you, and then we're going to see it. A great attraction genuine faith always has as its major component a great attraction listen folks God is not like us and this is where our concept of faith gets pushed in because we think it's like us God is like us we when we want to get our way what do we do we push God doesn't push He attracts. And that dynamic of pushing versus attracting can set the culture of a church and of your personal life and your family life. For instance, our natural tendency is to push. So we get behind our children and we push. We push them towards God. We push them in the direction that... That we think they should go. And we start feeling them going in an opposite direction. So we push a little harder to get them to go to this direction. We set up discipleship programs in the church. Because we get behind people and we're pushing them. Pushing them in the direction we think they need to go. Create curriculum. And our, our end result is if they gain this certain doctrinal knowledge. We did it. That's where they need to go. They gain some life skills. We did it. Push them into those life skills. Some behavioral norms that the the church agrees upon that is the behavioral norm. That's the direction we need to go. We push. And God's not like us. He attracts. Look at verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Now, (laughs) the word handsome literally means beautiful. So I've got to speculate. Why didn't the translator use Beautiful, if that's the literal translation, and the only thing I can come up with is, like most men, most men are uncomfortable with calling dudes beautiful. So he said handsome, but I think beautiful better captures what's being communicated here. Okay, it is beauty that is so attractive to him. Says, so what does beauty do? Beauty attracts. Beauty. Beauty draws, it invites. Beauty inspires. Beauty always leaves you wanting for more. In other words, you can dive into the depths of beauty and never walk out saying, that was enough. When you dive into the depths of beauty, you come out saying, I want more. And so do you see what's happening is that the psalmist is being captured and captivated and attracted by a great The most compelling beauty there is. And when he does, notice what happens. Trust becomes an easy thing to do. The scribe sees what is most beautiful. He sees a great attraction and he starts trusting. That's what starts happening. Okay. Now, how would, let's just apply it to some areas. Just just to get a picture of what I'm talking about. How would, how would this theme of a greater attraction impact your parenting? Instead of pushing, we move towards attracting. Let's just use parenting, and then we can kind of blow it up into the church at large, and then blow it up into our own personal lives, and blow it up in the way you interact with folks that know about Jesus and those that don't know about Jesus. Okay? One is this. Parents... We would stop pushing our children if we get attraction. If we get the greater attraction, if we see the one who's most beautiful, we don't become pushers. We become drawers and attractors. And then that's the catch and that's the rub. Because I'm going to be honest with you. The reason why we're not good attractors is because we don't see the beauty ourselves. And so all we're left with in our parenting is push, push, push. And we are raising generations of kids who have been pushed so much that they finally are pushed away from God completely. Okay? So what are we going to do? well, we're going to face the fact that we're pushers and we're going to confess it to the Lord as sin. And then we're going to say, oh God, I need to see your beauty. And if I see your beauty, I have something to give to my children and to parent my children that way. To attract them to the beauty of a, a glorious Savior. So right away, we can get on the path and the school of beauty by acknowledging that we're pushy parents. And we can say, I'm a pushy parent, Lord. It's wrong. And I need to see your beauty to become an attractor, to give attraction, to see my children be attracted to you. Okay? Okay? Now, those of you that are not Christians and you've been burned by pushy Christianity, for you, Christianity is judgmental. For you, Christianity is a bunch of rules and lists and laws. It's a moral superiority game. Uh, It's a shame-induced, driven uh, phenomenon. And for you, you possibly, even painfully, might have experienced from the church or from other Christians very deep and personal rejection. Why? Because you have a messy life that's it's not comfortable in the church. Okay? So what are some of the things that are not comfortable in the church today? Homosexuality. That, that mess, that's a little too uncomfortable for us. Women that have committed abortion. Sleeping around. Drugs. Pornography addiction. Okay? Look at verse 2 you are the most beautiful of the sons of men. Why? Grace, grace, grace pours out your lips. Every time you open your mouth, you speak a heavenly language that I don't understand. It sounds foreign to me, but boy, I grace is a heavenly language you can't learn it down here you gotta be taught from a from a most beautiful king real Christianity is beautiful because real Christianity is about grace when this king opens his mouth from his heart, from his lips, comes this heavenly, otherworldly language that we translate into grace. When Jesus finished preaching his first sermon, it was a room full of religious people. He's at temple. He's in a synagogue. He gets done preaching, and this is what happens. Luke's descri- Luke is described this time. So we got the Psalm 45 scribe. Well, Luke turns into the scribe. He's sitting there watching what's taking place. He says, when Jesus gets done, it's completely silent in this room full of religious people. And he says that everyone is stunned. Not a word is said. And then he says, every eye is fixed on the guy that just preached, Jesus. And so he closes the book that he just read from Isaiah. He goes to sit down. Every eye is moving on him. Why? Don't miss what he says. Why? Because religious people, everyone in that particular synagogue that heard this message, their whole life, they had based their relationship on God on their own record. And if their record was good, they felt secure and safe with God. If their record was bad, they had to wait till they got it good again. And so when Jesus started speaking, he starts quoting from Isaiah, someone they're very familiar with. And it talks about a rescuer. It talks about a champion. It talks about this human heavenly king come that walks in and sees captives, sets them free, walks up and sees those that can't see the glories of God, opens their eyes. And they began to see as he begins to proclaim it. And he closes the book and he says, this is fulfilled in your hearing right now. And they said, What gracious words came out of his mouth? It's not about your record. It's not about your performance. It's not about how emotionally connected you feel. It's not about you having your quiet time this morning. And it's not about you having your prayer meeting tonight. It's about the record of another. And when you get that, you come alive. And you trust him. And he gets very attractive. Okay? Now let's move on. What else does the scribe see? Remember, there are two components of genuine faith here. The first is a great attraction. Here's the second. You ready? A great champion. You knew that one was coming. Everyone got that one. Come on. The transition to all of a sudden the sword on the thigh. Mercy. This is better, better, better than gladiator. It's unbelievable. We're going to see it in a second. Now look. Rome excelled in warfare. We all know that Rome excelled in warfare. We know that they had the longest kingdom for the longest time. They conquered the known world for a long time. And it wasn't just because they were good diplomats. They had an army that could fight. One of the things that they would do, and they'd defeat an army, and this got spread throughout all the barbaric realms, places where you and I come from. (laughs) What they would do is they would take the enemy survivors and they would take their dead comrades and they would tie them together, mouth to mouth, eyeball to eyeball, hand to hand, feet to feet. Virgil, who's a historian, describes this cruel punishment this way in a, in a poem. The living and the dead at his command were coupled face to face and hand to hand Till choked with stench in loathed embraces tied, the lingering wretches pined away and died. When we get stuck in unbelief, we are bound to a dead corpse and we choke on the stench of lies about God, we choke on the stench of our false prophecies about the world we create. We're bound to our dominating desires. We're bound to trying to control our world. And we're like a wretch writhing in worry and anxiety and fear. And the scribe walks in with that kind of life because he understands it perfectly. And he says, you know what? We're bound to someone else. If you're a Christian, you're not bound to a dead corpse yourself. You are bound to this great king that we just see about. And so what we see is that all of a sudden what this king starts doing in his victories, what this king starts doing It becomes the people's victory. Do you see what's happening here? Because the scribe sees it, the greatest reality, because this is a marriage, remember? This is a wedding between this great king and a people. And so, yes, on the horizontal realm, it's like, oh, yeah, this is a Davidic king married to this princess. This is great. But on the vertical realm, there was something about a king and the people in Israel that they had a covenant and they were in a marriage in which the king's victories was their victory. The king's fame was their fame. The king's glory was their glory. The king's strength was their strength. The king's heroic feats and accomplishments and achievements was theirs. Do you see what's happening here? And so the psalmist walks in and he gets it. He gets it at that point. And he says... When he straps that sword on his thigh, and he does in verse three or verse four, look what the sword does. It says, "terrifying things." That literally means terrifying things. His sword does terrifying things. His sword does terrifying things to every enemy you have. Every enemy. What enemy do you have? Not flesh and blood. You have spiritual enemies? Your greatest enemy is the enemy within, your own sin. He straps a sword on his thigh and does terrifying things to that enemy. Your fears, your anxiety, your doubts, your lies that you believe about God and yourself, his sword is swinging. And it's R rated. This isn't G rated. Look what his arrows do. Verse five, they're sharp. They're accurate. They hit the enemy's heart. So what is that? Well, that's what's called a one drop kill. One shot, one kill. That's it. Next. New arrow. One shot, one kill to the heart of every enemy. Keep moving. Look at his armor. Verse three. Most people put on armor that well, it's very ornate. It's, very, it's trying to look as most intimidating as you can be. Armor was meant so when they would come on the battlefield and folks would see them from afar. That's why they do war cries. That's why they would have loud drums. It would rumble and you have thousands of soldiers walking. The ground would literally shake and then you catch them and you're like, who are they? You don't see their faces. They don't look human. They're meant not to look human, to scare you to death. But this king... Comes in with armor where he takes majesty and splendor as his armor. (laughs) Overwhelming. I mean, look in verse, what is it? Verse 3C. In your splendor and majesty, he wears his armor. He wears the armor of splendor and majesty. So you got to ask yourself if he wears the armor of splendor and majesty, what is he like? If that's only his armor, who's under that armor? See how this picture moves? Keep going. Well, let's go. We got armor. Now we got chariot. Verse 4a, most kings ride chariots. They ride war horses into battle. Look what this king rides on. His war horse, his chariot. He rides on the the chariot of overwhelming majesty and victory. In other words, for this king, when he goes into battle, there's no such thing as defeat. Defeat. The picture here is complete, unilateral, no contested, no contested conquest, victory. In other words, if one ounce of rebellion lifts its head, it's leveled. If one kingdom rises up that tries to thwart it, it's wiped out. Oh, you can trust a champion like that. Now remember in Israel's history, the earthly throne, look at verse 6. It's all moving towards verse 6. All this is moving towards verse 6. This is the goal. He goes out to ride to... He's out to be the champion to bring verse 6 in, the throne, the heavenly throne. Now remember, when Israel had their throne, that throne had this connection with the heavenly throne. In other words, the, the earthly king, the earthly throne was a picture, and even more than a picture... It was like this union between heaven and earth would take place. The earthly throne and the heavenly throne had this union, and they were awaiting complete and total fusion of two worlds and two kingdoms. And so, Israel's history was being primed for some human, extraordinary, messianic champion that would come in and unite the two kingdoms. The kingdom of earth and the kingdom of God. And so in all the prophecies in all of Israel's history, they're waiting for this champion. They're waiting for this king. So when they, when they see Israel's champion and Israel's king, it was always to remind them, there's a son of David coming who's coming to unite these two kingdoms. And so what we see in verse 6 is that it actually starts taking place. In fact, C.S. Lewis picks it up really profoundly, and he says that's what Christmas is all about, brothers and sisters. This is how C.S. Lewis says he says, Listen, when you get to Christmas, you've got to redo your vision of Christmas. It's not just this helpless babe. This is what he says. The birth of Christ is the arrival of the great warrior of Psalm forty five, the great king this human heavenly king who's going to unite the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven into one larger reality. That's why Paul said, look, he was born in the likeness of men, human. He's being found in human form, human. He humbled himself, becoming human, adding humanity to him by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now notice what happens. In this dying, in this doing, in this achieving, in this heroic feat, in this strapping on his sword, girding up his armor at the cross, in his perfect life, what Paul says, therefore God exalted him and gave him the name above every name. Put him on the throne. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Where? Where? In heaven, on earth, and just to cover everything, the text says, under the earth. Christian, you are bound to that king. Hand to hand, feet to feet, mouth to mouth, face to face, eyes to eyes, you're married. His achievements are yours. His heroic feats are yours. Now here's how we get grace. His record is yours. Prove it. Look at verse 6. When he rides out, And this kingdom comes. It's a kingdom and a scepter of uprightness, which is righteousness. You've loved righteousness. You've hated wickedness. His record is yours. And because his record is yours, words of grace, words of grace, words of grace grace are yours. So what do you need? What do you need the king to speak to you? Because you're bound to him. The kingdom that he has purchased is now yours. So you have the kingdom of God. So do you come in this morning and you lack faith? Well, don't try to find it in yourself. Faith is part of the kingdom of God. So you say, oh, king, give me faith. What do you lack? You lack strength. You lack the ability to love. You lack a poor prayer life. You lack, I'm a pushy parent. I don't even know what it means to confess sin and repent. What do you need? Oh, king. Oh, king. Your feats are my feats. Your achievements are my achievements. The kingdom of God is mine. You ask for it. You need forgiveness of sins. There's a civil war. There's a union soldiers had arrested a company of irregulars they're called bushwhackers. These would be Confederate soldiers that don't wear their uniforms and are trying to move behind enemy lines. And wow, well, it's kind of a form of terrorism. Okay, so they're moving behind enemy lines without the uniforms. They get caught. One Union soldier recognizes one of the Confederate soldiers. They actually are family friends. And this Union soldier sees this Confederate soldier, goes up to his commanding officer, and says, Let me take his place. His officer says, No way. You've got to be kidding me. He goes, Look, I know his family. I know his wife, I know his kids. They need him. I don't have all my, my parents are dead. My whole family's gone. And all I have is this army of you guys. <laughs> Let me take his place. So today you can go in a sleepy little southern town. There's a stone that marks this Union boy's grave in this sleepy southern town. And here's what it says. Sacred to the memory of Willie Lear, he took my place. Brothers and sisters, Jesus not only took your place in death so you can have forgiveness of sins and so you can hear deep in the depths of your being no more condemnation. There is none. Not from God, not from others, not from yourself but he also took your place in life as a triumphant king. So you can have his perfect record. His fame is your fame. His feats are your feats. His accomplishments and achievements are yours. So you can lift up your hearts and you can lift up your minds. You can trust this king because grace comes out of his mouth every time he talks to you. Amen.